is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Feldman. More waiting for election results in L.A. to figure out who will be the next mayor. Will it be Karen Bass or Rick Caruso? Now, if you've been keeping score, the latest tally of votes shows a very, very close race, with Caruso just slightly ahead. But if the race remains close, what happens? We'll go in-depth, and we'll try to figure that out. An internal war might be brewing right now in the Republican Party between Donald Trump and his staunchest supporters and everyone else who blames him for the lack of a red wave on Tuesday. We try to find out who'll win that one. And another big setback for President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan and those drowning in student loan debt. Meanwhile, Ukrainians are celebrating in Kherson as they get a big victory over Russian forces there. We'll go in-depth into uh, what happens next in this war and how this impacts Russia and Vladimir Putin. A big, big cryptocurrency exchange filing for bankruptcy now, leaving people wondering if crypto is still worth the investment. More chaos to tell you about at Twitter. Elon Musk stops a subscription service. We all know that couples tend to argue and fight at times, but now they're using their smartphones to do it. We ask, will that lead to more resolutions or more breakups? What happens if the battery dies? Maybe maybe a resolution <laughs> then. <laughs> we start with the, with the apparently tight L.A. mayor's race. Kevin Walston is a political science professor at Cal State Long Beach and has been following the race pretty closely. Kevin, thanks for being with us. Um, we'll get more results uh, Actually, pretty soon, we're told. But suppose this remains neck and neck. I mean, I suppose it's theoretically possible that they'll remain, you know, within a few hundred, maybe a thousand or so points of votes of one another. What happens then? Is there some sort of a threshold at which if they don't meet it, it goes to some kind of a recount? Uh, well, uh, no is the short answer. Um, I, I want to point out at the start here that really anything is possible. Uh, we have a race here with 1.4 million ballots and only about uh, 500,000 have been counted. So the fact that it's close now really doesn't tell us anything about what this race is going to look like in a week. And, and to your point, that that leaves us uh, in the dark about what the future holds. Uh, the way the recount process works uh, in in LA is is different than it works elsewhere. Some places have a mandated threshold, as you point out, where you need to have a recount if um, if the number of votes or the margin isn't large enough. Uh, that's not the case in the city of, of LA. Any voter, uh, certainly any candidate, but any voter can uh, request a recount from the city. And uh, we could be facing a recount again from, from a request issued by somebody who's not even on the ballot. So if this does end up being like razor thin, one of the candidates, be it Bass or Caruso, could in fact request a recount. That's absolutely right. Again, uh, it need not be them, though, importantly. Uh, anybody could file such a request. I will say there's a major uh, a major deterrent to that happening, though. The cost of the recount has to be paid by the person who files it if the recount does not change the outcome. So if you are going to uh, petition for a recount of the mayoral race, you have to be prepared and, and indeed you have to pay in advance the cost of that recount. Uh, so this should provide a sufficient deterrent from anybody uh, trying to get a, a sort of uh, a recount going well, unless it's pretty clear that that some that there's a reason for doing how, so. How expensive is a recount? 
Is it you more know, than I, is it I, more than a hundred dollars? If it's well, under, if it's, it's under, probably it's probably less than a hundred million. Um, I was so going to say, if it's under a hundred million, Caruso can afford it. Yeah, so I, you know, I mean, I think his his personal wealth here really does change the dynamic. It's it's a great point to bring up. If you're already invested a hundred million, uh, I'm not sure what the additional cost of the recount is really going to mean to you. Importantly, I've done a lot of research on this, and I haven't been able to identify the exact cost. It's actually a number that has to be produced uh, given the circumstances. Uh, by the registrar's office. So they would have to come up with an estimate. Whoever filed the recount would have to then pay that. Uh, again, they, they have to pay it uh, on a sort of day-to-day basis. You can pay it all up front, but you can pay it. You need to pay at least by the time the votes are counted that day. So you get a kind of daily estimate. I I, I have to believe that if uh, Bass ends up losing the initial count, um, it may be difficult for her to finance the 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 recount. But if Caruso loses, uh, we could probably see one of these get off the ground pretty quickly. There's got to be a efficient, more efficient, quicker way to do this. Uh, on yesterday's show, we were talking with with another guest about how many countries use electronic voting. You go into the uh, to the voting place and it's electronic, so it's tabulated really fast instead of doing this long process. Why aren't we doing that? It's it's a great question. It's a question that increasingly everybody's asking. And uh, you can look, you don't have to look abroad, you can actually look within the US and see places that are obviously doing it better. Uh, California has become kind of a laughingstock uh, on on this question. I mean, I see frequently over the last couple of days, people laughing that we only have 50, 60% of our votes counted. Uh, what's going on in the state of California, obviously will hold up our ability to draw conclusions about who's in power nationally. Um, so why doesn't it happen? I mean, the big part of the problem, obviously, is the decentralized and highly fragmented nature of our electoral system. We have national elections that are conducted by state governments and state governments delegate a lot of that count of power uh, to counties and counties are going to each make individual idiosyncratic kinds of decisions. And it makes uh, it makes the, the process confusing to understand, but it also makes reforming it incredibly difficult. Elections work very well and the count is done very quickly in some places and other places it's not. We happen to be in a place where where it's not. And this really becomes a problem when we have close elections. If it's a blowout, it matters far less. But when we have these really close elections, uh, you know, these these counts are going to drag. And I think that, um, you know, yes, you want to get it right, but we have to increasingly be aware of the costs of, of drawing things out in this way. I, I just don't think it's good for our, our faith in, in, in our elections. I can remember hearing in past elections, uh, elections officials saying that the fact that it's different with their, from county to county, city to city, state to state uh, within the country, it makes it far more difficult for our elections to be hacked as opposed to everything being uh, the same over the computer as well, uh, you know. That's yeah, it's absolutely true. It's it's the virtue, but there's again this this tremendous uh, you know, downside as well. And uh, yeah. but but yeah, if you want to if you wanted to rig a, a statewide election, um, it would be nearly impossible as you see because you would have to coordinate elected officials across all sorts of different um, different localities, and and that yeah. would be nearly impossible. Kevin, thank you again. That's Kevin Walston, political science professor at uh, Cal State Long Beach. Yeah, right now, though, many Republicans, they're blaming former President Trump for the lack of a red wave on Tuesday. The former president may announce next week that he's running for president in 2024. He's already, though, slamming his possible primary opponent. That would be Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in what could be the start of a civil war of sorts in the Republican Party. Charlotte Hill is director of the New Democracy Policy Initiative at UC Berkeley's 
Goldman School of Public Policy. Thanks for being with us. So it's interesting in politics how one day somebody who's your like real good bud, the next day becomes your real big enemy. And that's what's shaping up, is it not, between Mr. Trump and Mr. DeSantis? It sure seems to be shaping up that way. And you know, I wouldn't say election night was uh, the only, uh, well, you know, was the first time that we saw a real uh, rivalry emerging. I think we saw some uh, trends in that direction in the lead up to election day. But certainly, uh, you know, Trump is probably furious at home right now with all the talk of DeSantis being the new leader of the Republican Party. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, new, the New York newspaper, the, the Post, which I guess is one of Donald Trump's favorites, uh, they had a high uh, headline, Trumpty Dumpty. The Wall Street Journal, uh, again, seen as uh, oftentimes their editorial pages favoring Republicans. Uh, their headline after the election day, Trump is the GOP's, GOP's biggest loser. Um, he really is going to be facing some headwinds, not just from the the RNC, but also in in the public eye. And that's something Donald Trump really is disgusted to, to, to even think about. You know, if we know anything about Trump, it's that he will not go down without a fight. He's certainly not going to cede his control over the Republican Party without kicking and screaming. And I will say I am skeptical that voters will suddenly shift their allegiance to DeSantis after what, six years of the Republican Party really aligning behind Trump as its North Star. So, you know, we'll see. But but I, I am skeptical that Trump's moment is passing. You know, Chris mentioned uh, the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal. And that brings to mind an interesting thing here, which is that Donald Trump largely got where he got other than because of his TV exposure, of course. But in his earlier days in New York City, because he was the darling of the New York Post, owned by Rupert Murdoch, the Wall Street Journal, owned, owned by, by Rupert, Rupert Murdoch, Murdoch, Fox News Channel, owned <laughs> by Rupert Murdoch. But the, it is it is not a coincidence that those three, Fox News has sort of backed away to some degree from Mr. Trump. Uh, as Chris just pointed out, the New York Post front page, the Wall Street Journal. Can Donald Trump be Donald Trump in 2024 without the backing of the very powerful Murdoch family? It's an interesting question, and it brings to mind a conversation that we were all having in 2015, 2016, when, if you remember back then, Fox News really seemed to be coming out strong against Donald Trump and trying to boost the popularity of some other candidates in the Republican primary, but who came out on top at the end? It, it was Trump. Uh, so maybe we're seeing you know, uh, the, the Murdoch um, crew trying to test the waters again, but I, I'm really not sure if they are going to be able to collectively, if those you know, media institutions will be able to collectively rival the power of Trump or not. I mean, this time around, yeah, we have what seems to be a strong um, competitor to Trump in the mix. So, so maybe having DeSantis there will give the right wing media institutions a little more power to um, to not just say, you know, not Trump, but but yes, support this guy instead. Uh, but again, I just think that we've seen time and again that Trump is able to overcome setbacks that would ruin other politicians because he have su has such unwavering loyalty from such a strong segment of the Republican base. 
I saw this quote from Republican strategist Leslie Sanchez. He said DeSantis, once seen as an extreme populist, now he's showing he knows a thing or two about sound governance. I guess the question is for Ron DeSantis, DeSantis, he's riding high in Florida, just won uh, by a wide margin. Does he want to get into uh, what could be a very ugly uh, primary against the former president? I don't have any doubt that DeSantis is seriously considering uh, a run for 2024. He had such a strong showing. That said, Florida is not especially representative of the country. It's moved so far right uh, in in the last couple of years, while much of the country seems uh, apparently, based on the midterm results, to have shifted uh, to the left. We saw Democrats in states like Michigan and Colorado win with such large margins, margins of, you know about the same size as DeSantis's in Florida. Um, so there's the question of his viability overall as a presidential candidate for the country. But I think you know what I'm really paying attention to is what happens if Donald Trump does declare his own intentions to run in the coming week. Uh, what does the kind of media cycle following that look like? How does DeSantis respond then? And you know, I really don't. I don't know what we're going to see. I think every you know, political scientist, every political journalist, their eyes are really going to be glued to that announcement yeah. uh, well, and seeing what kind of falls out. Well, isn't the thing about Donald Trump is that he does sort of suck the air out of the universe? Uh, I mean, yeah. if he declares that he's going to run again, it seems to me almost impossible that all eyes are not going to once again be on him For the next two years. Right. I mean, everyone's going to be asking, what is he doing? What is he saying? What is he? He's not tweeting, at least not yet, but on his own social media platform. How do you prevent that? You can't. I don't think you can prevent it. I mean, if if I had to put money down, I would still bet on Trump being the nominee in 2024. You know, just in August, after the Mar-a-Lago search, six in 10 Republican voters were still saying that Trump should be the nominee Eight in 10 believe he can win. He has a really high favorability rating among Republicans, at least back in August when, when that polling came out, it was notably higher uh, than DeSantis is. So I, I still see him as the front runner. I think DeSantis had a great uh, night on Tuesday and he's having his his moment in the sun. But I just, you know, Trump's had his moment for the last six years. And I, so, and I think he's going to be the front runner. Before again. we run out of time, then one quick question. Do you see a Trump DeSantis ticket? Mm, I'm skeptical. I don't I don't see Trump putting DeSantis uh, that close to power, but we'll see. Yeah, it'll it's certainly going to be interesting. Uh, Charlotte, thank you again. That's uh, Charlotte Hill, director of the New Democracy Policy Initiative at UC Berkeley. Every couple argues. I mean, right. I mean, it's just kind of part of the thing, but it's how they argue that can be different. And when we continue a little bit later on in the show, you're going to have to hang around, stay with us for a while. We are going to tell you about the kind of new way that couples are arguing with one another. I'm looking forward to that segment. Uh, Right now, though, a federal judge in Texas blocking President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. It was already on hold as a federal appeals court considers a separate lawsuit in this case. With us to talk more uh, is a Rosalind Pistilli, a therapist at Open Arms Counseling and Transition Center in Colorado. She applied with this program to have $20,000 in loans forgiven. Uh, Rosalind, thanks for joining us. The legal argument against the program is that the president actually has no authority to implement it without Congress passing a bill. I believe Nancy Pelosi even made mention of that, what, about a year ago when she was questioned, saying, the president can't do it. End of subject. Next. 
How would this that all that said, how would this affect you? Well, it affects me both personally and professionally. Um, I have a master's degree. I've completed some of the work towards my doctorate degree. So I carry a high amount of student loan debt. And my my minimum payments don't even touch my interest rate. So I'm watching that debt build while making my payments on time and having my payments be largely ineffective. Now, you know, of course, Rosalind, that there are people listening, uh, and I'm sure you've encountered them in your own life, who, you know, are not particularly empathetic to uh, people like you. They say, well, you know, they knew what they were getting into, and other people have paid off their student loans, so be it. What do you say to them? I think that it's it's fantastic when people can pay off their student loans. And when I was a student acquiring this debt, I acquired it with the full knowledge that I would be responsible for the debt and it would be my burden to pay back the student loans with the idea that I would be in a stable career environment where I would have the funds um, to pay back that debt. And I'm not saying that that's not the case. <clears throat> Therapists have um, really kind of thrived during the pandemic because of the increase in mental health needs. But at the same time, we're dealing with the fallout from the pandemic with this looming recession over us. A lot of us are experiencing anxiety related to our finances and to have this student loan debt looming, especially because we haven't been making our payments during the pandemic. And now we've, we're getting ready to kick back into those payments again. Um, it's creating a lot of increased anxiety for my clients. It's creating a lot of increased anxiety for myself. Um, and the, one of the main issues that decided the election was this student loan relief. It was something that Biden campaigned very heavily on. And so to have this then be blocked by the courts puts us in this state of I don't know, as well as all of the state of I don't know that we're already in related to the economy. We're all watching the election results from the midterm elections. It's just creating a lot of worry and anxiety oh. and questions. Rosalind, let me ask you this. Do you agree with those who say that this does nothing to resolve the problem when it comes to the university systems, that there needs to be reform within the universities themselves, rather than just having the government, us, the American public, pay off these debts? You see where I'm coming from here? Reforming yeah, the, reforming the system, is, rather than putting a Band-Aid this on is it. A multi-pronged, this is a multi-pronged issue, right? We have um, universities ballooning their costs for attendance, right? Um, the cost to obtain a culminating degree now is more than triple what it was when I even started back in college. So, of course, yes, we need to look at the entire system. Um, but this relief is very necessary to help just day-to-day -day Americans navigate their own financial crises. I, I, I hear you, but but I want to go back to the point I was, I was uh, making a little bit earlier about people who might look at, at, at 
you and people like you and, and who are in that particular bind and, and make this argument. And they would say, perhaps, well, there are people who would like to have their mortgages forgiven or their medical debt forgiven or their legal bills forgiven, and they don't have that benefit. And they're as uh, you know, depressed and anxious about their debts as you and people who are uh, those of you who have had student loans outstanding as, as, as anxious as you are about your debt. Why should you be forgiven yours and they are not forgiven theirs? I don't disagree with that sentiment at all. And again, like when we sign up to be students, we do entrance counseling and exit counseling, right? So that we understand the debt that we are undertaking. However, most students, when they're uh, assuming this debt, they're 18, 19, 20 years old. They don't have a full understanding of what credit means, what debt means. You know, they're thinking, okay, I'm going to acquire these student loans. I'm going to get a degree. Then I'm going to get a job in my field. The people that really genuinely need this assistance are the people that have gone to school, gotten a degree, and cannot get a job in their field. Okay. Rosalind, thank you. Again, that's Rosalind Pistilli. Uh, She is a therapist, $20,000 in student loan debt. This is KNX In-Depth with Chris Edens. I'm Charles Feldman. Ukrainians in the southern city of Kherson now outside celebrating, waving their blue and yellow flags as Russian forces have now left the city. Ukraine's president says special units of the military are already there, as he described the moment as historic. With us again from Kharkiv, Ukraine, is journalist Phil Itner. Phil, thanks for being back with us. Well, that's something uh, we mentioned this before the commercial break. You don't hear, understandably, much uh, of coming out of Ukraine, people, you know, waving flags and celebrating in the streets. Uh, Is it a well-based celebration or is there still danger signals there anyway? Well, there are a number of kind of uh, danger signals that exist. Uh, There are reports of uh, Russian soldiers having uh, stayed back and uh, taken civilian clothing on. Uh, There's still some concern about maybe unexploded ordnance that have been left. Uh, But, uh, you know, there there was a lot of caution when the the Russians uh, said that they were going to leave uh, Kherson. But it does indeed look as though they have retreated and that the, the city is indeed liberated. Now, it's going to take some time to confirm a lot of the situation on the ground there. Most importantly, the, the, as I said, the, the uh, munitions that may have been left behind. But uh, tonight it is a celebration not only in Kherson, but throughout the entire country. Yeah, Phil, let's talk a little bit more about those munitions being left behind. I heard this morning... Um Stories of booby traps, explosive devices being left in places like under beds, in washing machines. Are you hearing that those stories as well? Well, it's it's really too early to say how how much that might exist on the ground in Kherson. But given the track record of what the Russians have done in prior places where they've retreated, and most notably around. Uh, Kiev, uh, you know, where uh, uh, they, 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 about uh, uh, a 
third of the way into the, the war so far, the Russians said that they were going to re-emphasize the Donbass. Uh, and so they pulled out of uh, Kiev. They pulled out of uh, their advances on the second largest city of uh, Kharkiv. Um, and what people came in as they were searching through uh, for unexploded ordnance, and there are a number of reports, is yes, indeed, what the Russians have done in the past during this war is uh, is to leave booby traps behind in places where it really is just uh, a civilian who might be targeted. So you see like microwaves that you open up the door of the microwave and somebody's left a hand grenade, you know, a Russian soldier's left a, a hand grenade in there and, and you, you basically are killing civilians. Uh, same with, you know, all sorts of kind of just, uh, you know, uh, laundry machines or uh, <laughs> television sets or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what it, what the track record here so far is that indeed it's something that the Russian soldiers have done. And so there's great concern that it might happen again. Phil, the, the, the Russians uh, apparently pulling out of Hassan is significant. Why? Because that was... It wasn't that the the first and I think only provincial capital that the Russians actually succeeded at least for a while in taking over. And if they pull out, what does it mean to them? What does it mean to Ukraine? Yeah, this is the the, the only town the Russians were able to actually seize and hold for any substantial period of time. Um, that is a provincial capital. Is uh, is Kherson, and Kherson was actually taken the very beginning of the war quickly by troops coming up through Crimea, and there was an awful lot of very uh, suspicious activity in the way that it was done. Uh, for example, they had a number of different pro-Russian officials who were ready to step right into uh, the. The governance, so the mayor's office, the governor, the you know what would be the in our terms the governor's office. Immediately, they were occupied by uh, locals in Kherson who were pro-Russian, and a lot of people uh, here uh, say that um, it was because they were bought off that there was uh, a lot of uh, subterfuge that uh, they were that basically Kherson fell not through force of arms but by a lot of back back dealing and that kind of thing. So Kherson was their big success, uh, the Russians. And so to lose this, they don't have any other um, provincial capitals. Now, you know, the, the tragedy of what happened in, say, Mariupol uh, it was a major city, but it wasn't a provincial capital. And so this is, there's no getting around it. If, if it yeah. does go the way it looks like it's going, this is a significant defeat for the Russian military, and uh, it puts paid uh, a lot of uh, questions about the you know the sham referendums that were held, for example. Right, was one of them right. was in Kherson, where the Russians said, you know, well, they love us so much that they voted to become part of the Russian Federation. Well, you know, the the people on the streets tonight who are celebrating, um, calling the question the entire the entire. Mm -hmm semblance of, of that sham referendum. We're, we're going to have to leave it yeah. there, Phil, because we're running out of time, yeah. but we will be checking back with you probably Stay next safe. week is my guess. Yeah, from Kharkiv, uh, Ukraine, that is journalist Phil Itner. Well, as we said, the uh, withdrawal of Russian troops from Kherson is seen as a major defeat for Russian leader Vladimir Putin. It was only recently that he declared 
the occupied territories of Ukraine as part of Russia now and forever. Yeah, Robert English is director of Central European Studies at USC. He's an expert on Russia and Russian politics. Uh, sir, thanks for joining us today. Things certainly are not going well for Vladimir Putin. What might be his next move? How does he turn things around, or or can he at this point? It doesn't look likely that he can turn anything around, neither his slipping support at home nor, of course, on the central battlefront in Ukraine. The thing I want to caution about is this is, while a humiliation for precisely the reasons you said, just days after declaring it part of Russia forever, it slipped back into Ukrainian control. And that's a humiliation, a major humiliation. But there's a long way to go yet. And when we look at the map, we see this is a few hundred square kilometers of territory when Russia holds hundreds of thousands and a long winter is ahead. So it's just a caution that there are many more battles ahead and it's a long slog. But this is a big step forward for Ukraine. Yes. How confident can we all be that uh, Vladimir Putin's grip is so iron tight uh, on, on the Russian apparatus. Uh, We've heard in recent weeks more and more kind of dissenting voices, which is very in and of itself unusual, coming from hardliners inside uh, Russia, in Moscow, inside the Kremlin, in fact. Uh, Is there any possibility that these defeats and embarrassments, as everyone seems to, to think they are, for Putin could lead eventually, and I'm not talking about years, but maybe months, to an internal conflict that would lead to his ouster. We just can't know that. It's just too tightly concealed. And uh, again, I caution that what happened with Kherson, the retreat from Kherson, is a major advance for Ukraine, but there'll be many, many more major advances before Russia's position completely crumbles. Right. And in fact, there's a lot of caution, justifiably so, about exactly what's going to happen next. There are actually hardline military commentators who are praising Putin for a sensible tactical retreat, right? Kherson is a city across the Dnieper River, very difficult to defend. The Russians had their backs to the river in this flat, um, terrain, featureless territory where the Ukrainians were just pummeling them with this advanced artillery and other drones that they've been able to get from their Western supporters. Having pulled back across the river, The Russians are now in a much stronger position um, to halt or slow the Ukrainian advance for weeks to come with this horrible weather coming, right? The Russians, it was just a salient that they couldn't protect, and now they're in a more defensible position, and we have reports that they have indeed been fortifying the eastern bank of the river. So the Ukrainians have to regroup. Um, It might be another month or two before another major push comes, and the winter is coming. That's why Putin has bought himself a bit of time here, and why sensible military commentators said this was actually the first smart thing he's done in a while, um, let the generals you know, make a sensible tactical retreat instead of giving up something like the Kharkov disaster up north back yeah. in September. Robert, as the world watches this unfold, and it has been going on now since, what, February, concern does grow by some that Putin could do something drastic. How concerned are you about that possibility? Well, here's an interesting answer. Again, really respected military analysts who have been micro-analyzing the battle for Kherson 
actually, some of them have said this is a good sign overall that Putin, instead of digging his heels in and fighting a last ditch, disastrous political battle the way he has elsewhere, um, yielded to common sense and again, made a sensible tactical retreat. This to them suggests that he's not suicidal. He's not crazy extreme. And they use that as indirect evidence that he's not likely to reach for that nuclear you know, button very, anytime soon. This is all this is going to end as all wars do, right, with a negotiated settlement of some type. The only question is who has the uh, the upper hand in the negotiation, right? Um, Do you agree with that? I I do. And we see that some part of the Biden administration, this is cause for concern for the Ukrainians. There are some in the Biden administration, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Miley, speaking about the need to begin talking, negotiating even now. And the Ukrainians say, why would we do that now? We're on a roll. Um, But precisely, as you point out, there will be negotiations in the end. There is a long way to go. Russia still has a huge swath of territory. And it's hard to admit this, but they're likely going to end up holding on to Crimea and maybe some small part of the Donbass. Otherwise, both sides just exhaust each other. Look, we also had news that 200,000 casualties, roughly equally split between the two sides, right? Neither side can afford that. 100,000 killed or seriously wounded. Uh, That can't keep up indefinitely. I mean, you can simply project, given how much territory is left to retake, it'll cost Ukraine another two or 300 casualties. At some point, they'll be under pressure to, um, you know, take the best deal they can. Robert, thank you. Yeah, Robert, thank you for your perspective. Again, that's uh, Robert English, director of Central European Studies at USC. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, cryptocurrency has puzzled many people, but uh, over the years, it's moved out of the shadows as more and more people buy up Bitcoin and other cryptos. But crypto might be in some trouble now. The cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, just filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and its CEO has stepped down. This comes as there's a lot of uncertainty in the tech world right now, with big layoffs at Facebook's parent company and now more issues with Twitter as Elon Musk is suspending that $8 a month subscription service for that blue check. Attorney Brian Davidoff is a chair of bankruptcy reorganization and capital recovery at the law firm Greenberg Gluskard. Uh, Brian, thanks for being with us. Uh, there are probably, I'm guessing, actually I'm sure, there are people who are listening who don't have any idea what FTX is. They don't know probably what a cryptocurrency is, and they may not even get why it matters, if it matters, that this company, FTX, has filed for bankruptcy. So it's a big chore that I'm asking you to condense into a short time, but tell tell us why it does matter. Well, it matters because there's billions of dollars involved and many, uh, many hundreds of thousands of people. But basically, a cryptocurrency exchange is an exchange that matches buyers and sellers with each other based on their bids and asks. But in the world of crypto, An exchange is a little confusing because it's different from a securities exchange or a commodities exchange. Uh, In a securities exchange, for example, the New York Stock Exchange, 
There it enables buyers and sellers to contract, but it doesn't do more than that. It doesn't actually execute the trade. That trade is executed by clearinghouse. In the context of a crypto exchange, however, it does it all. It verifies the transaction and it executes on the transaction. And that's significant here because in the case of a crypto exchange, there's been a collapse for, of, XT, of FTX as there has been of prior crypto exchanges. But when you compare this to other kinds of exchanges, such as, for example, again, securities exchanges, those are subject to regulation. And many of them have insurance. Uh, for example, FDIC insurance available to bank deposits. There is very little regulation and no insurance that's available on crypto exchanges. Well, if you're involved in crypto, this is obviously very concerning news today. But for those who aren't, is there reason for concern as well, say a possible spillover that that could in some way affect other markets, other parts of our society? Well, the crypto market uh, at its height was about $3 trillion. Uh, it has a value of under a trillion dollars today. So it is still a very significant part of the market. And many significant and well-known venture funds and private equity groups have invested in it, as well as hundreds of thousands of people. So it potentially could have a spillover effect. But for the moment, it seems to be contained within the world of crypto. Where does this go from here, though? Uh, I mean, FTX was hoping to get a bailout. That didn't happen. Why? So what happened over here was that FTX, which, uh, as you pointed out, is owned by a gentleman by the name of Sam Bankman-Fried. He had two businesses. He had uh, FTX, which was his uh, exchange platform. And then he had a related company by the name of Alameda Research, which was his trading firm. The two businesses were separate, but what happened here was that there was an article that came out of a publication called Coinbase, which showed that a significant portion of the assets that Alameda Research had were of tokens that had been issued by FTX. So you might ask, what are tokens? Uh, many of the cryptocurrencies issue their own so-called native tokens. The obvious one is Bitcoin. It has the Bitcoin token. Ethereum, which is another major uh, um, exchange, uh, has uh, its own ETF token. FTX had issued a token called FTT, and a significant portion of Alameda Research's assets was this FTT token. When that was published, it caused really an old-fashioned run on the bank. People wanted to withdraw their money. And so what happened was that another exchange by the name of Binance, which is another major exchange in the crypto world, they came along, they offered to buy FTX, but after completing their due diligence, they elected not to do so. Uh, and they withdrew, that just exacerbated the run on the bank. And as a result, uh, FTX landed up in a bankruptcy court uh, in Delaware this morning. Okay. Uh, Brian, thank you for your perspective on this. That's attorney Brian Davidoff, uh, specialist on bankruptcy, reorganization, and capital recovery. Couples 
will inevitably get into an argument if they're with each other long enough. It's just a basic fact of life. Sometimes that arguing can lead to screaming and shouting. Yeah, but thanks to smartphones, couples can argue without even talking to each other. It's called fexting or fighting through text messages. Fexting. Uh, apparently, even First Lady Jill Biden has admitted to fexting with her husband, the president. But she uh, uh, should couples should couples be, be handling arguments this way? Let's delve deeper into this. Jamie Mahler is a clinical psychotherapist at Recollect Self. She's a relationship trauma specialist. Jamie, thanks for joining us today. Fexting, is this something we should at all be worrying about, or is it just the way things work in this new tech-heavy era that we now live in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is so relevant because um, I know this, like, came from one of those articles that you guys were referring to where fexting kind of became trendy. Um, What I... I think it's a little worrisome because when we think about what fexting is, is it's kind of like bypassing the natural flow of information when we're talking to our partner. And so it's really important to have tone and it's really important to have that audible depiction of what you're saying, right? We we can't hear jokes. We can't hear sarcasm in texting. So yeah, it, there's a, it's a slippery slope. Let's just say that. <laughs> but it is quiet or quieter. And I suppose, depending on your living circumstances, it, it could be beneficial, could it not? Yeah. So I liked, um, I liked some of the points of um, texting where you are able to articulate, you are able to maybe work around children's schedules if children are home and we don't want to blow out fights in front of them. So I think there's, I don't think it has to be all or nothing. I think there's room here for maybe checking in, saying there might be something you would like to talk about. Maybe there's something really uh, important for you to address. And if that turns into some back and forth and banter between texts, yeah, absolutely. That can be fruitful. And I don't know if that would be beneficial in the long run for the entirety of the dialogue or conflict to occur via text. Yeah, so often when there is conflict, what you want to try and do uh, is bring down the temperature in the room. And by doing this, by fixing, could that be a good starting off point to a discussion? So, yes. Yeah. So it's almost like the benefits, you know, the the cost and, you know, risk benefit analysis right here, right? So, If we're talking about lowering the temperature and people have a tendency to really, really get dysregulated when they attempt to have conflict or when they attempt to have dialogue around something they disagree with. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's like baby steps that can occur around texting. You could initiate or try to articulate a little bit better around maybe putting your words down in front of you. But what's interesting, because, you know, I am a therapist. What I find interesting about this is I actually think it's almost more beneficial for us as an individual to write down our thoughts, right? And maybe even before you hit send, (laughs) just read through your thoughts. Um, Do do some editing, in other words. Right, right. Like I actually think that would be that's that's kind of a therapeutic technique that many people utilize when you're really dysregulated and you really can't formulate thoughts. So, in that regard, yes. Absolutely. If we're talking about layering processing, 
Absolutely. Get some, get some information down, write it down on a piece of paper, put it in your phone notes, put it in, if you need to put it in a text message, but before you hit send, maybe just cross-reference some of the way you articulated some of your pain or articulated a frustration that you might have with your partner. And then with that, like I said, let that not be the end-all be-all, right? The end-all be-all would ultimately be like able to sitting with, able to be sitting with that partner and dialoguing so they can hear that tone, so they can really hear some of the pain, right, that might be behind some of the words. Well, maybe um, maybe the compromise right. instead of sending a text is to send an email. Uh, yeah, I mean, really, we're trying, what we're really trying to do, and so actually, I think there's, what I look at that as like layers of processing, right? We got to process in different ways. Some people do it better where we just interchange like you guys on the radio, right? Like you can just shoot shoot the breeze and just, you know, talk really easily. And then some people really struggle with that. And so what they're going to want to do is maybe write that stuff down. And if that looks like it's coming from an email, that's fine. Uh, I actually, I don't know if you are looking for like maybe a happy medium, but one of the things that I, if I was talking to a couple that was dealing with this, I probably would say, hey, I actually like the idea of you trying to articulate how you're feeling. Uh, but I also don't love the idea of like losing tone and like not knowing what you're reading in front of you, because think about it. I could say, yeah, I'm great. Right. And it could be, yep. Great. And it could be sarcastic or it could be yeah, true oh, enough. really great. Right. I'm really great today. <laughs> right. So yeah. I, um, there's, there's a couple of apps out there. I mean, I could name like one right off the top of my head, but there's a couple of voice messaging apps mm. that do that. And if you're, um, if you are on, um, the socials, you know, if you're on IG, IG gives, um, DMs the opportunity to do voice you know, messaging. You know, Chris, so, she, yeah. she, she's given, uh, me an idea. <laughs> oh, maybe, okay. we'll, maybe what we should do, uh, going forward is, uh, maybe we should just like text the show. Yeah. Well, you know, as my radio partner, I was just about actually just grab my cell yeah. phone here. I was going to be sending you yeah. a Yeah, we just text. text it. Yeah. And yeah. then, yeah. I, Here's I like what I really idea. think of. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie, thank you. That is Jamie Mahler, Relation Trauma Therapist, joining us on In-Depth. That'll do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, for Charles, I'm Chris. Have a great weekend. We're back again Monday.